Welcome to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast from Centenary United Methodist Church. I'm Dr. Glenn Kinkin, Senior Minister here at Centenary. My hope is that this podcast will give you some good news for your journey today. If you would join with me in your Bible or your Pew Bible or the Bible app on your phone, our text today comes from Matthew's Gospel Uh, The fifth chapter, verses 38 to 48. Hear with me now the words of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also a second mile. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven For he makes his sun shine on the evil and on the good. For he makes makes the rain shine on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. My friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? So most holy God, As we come to worship, as we come to praise you, may we listen to you. May we listen in a way that your words are embedded deep within our souls so that our lives might be changed. And that in being changed, when we leave this holy ground and we carry our acts of worship into the world, that the world sees that we are not just hearers of your words, but that we are doers of your words. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen. In August of 1945, Branch Rickey was the president of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And he selected Jackie Robinson to play for the Dodgers and essentially become the first African-American Major League Baseball player. Now what we know about Jackie Robinson is that he was no shrinking violet of any sort. He was aggressive, he was outraged by injustice, he was quick to stand up for himself and for his rights. Even so much so that when he was in the army and on equal footing, if you will, in the ranks, asked to go to the back of the bus, he refused to do so and was consequently court-martialed. See, what we know about Jackie is that he was prone to fight back, not to turn the other cheek, 
But when Branch Rickey drafted him, he was looking for something else. He was looking for restraint. And their conversation went something along the lines like this, where Branch Rickey says, Jackie, I know you're a good ball player, but what I want to know is if you have the guts. And Robinson said, Mr. Rickey, are you looking for someone who is afraid to fight back? Branch Rickey went right back at him and says, Robinson, I'm looking for a ball player who has guts enough to not fight back. See, what Branch Rickey knew was what the rest of the world saw in 1947 when Jackie made it to the show. Branch Rickey knew that he would have to endure suffering, that he would endure the cruelty of the racial environment in our country, racial slurs being cleated high on the leg by players sliding in that didn't think he belonged catching death threats, having catchers spit on his shoes when he stepped in the batter's box, being beamed by opposing pitchers. He knew all of this. But he knew if he selected the right player, something miraculous would happen. And he found that in Jackie Robinson. Because despite enduring all these things, Jackie Robinson played unselfishly. He endured all of the insults with silence. And in the product of this, over time, he earned the respect not only of his teammates, but the other ball players in the leagues and ultimately the American people. When asked to sort of sum up his life, Jackie Robinson said these words, a life is not important except in the impact it has on others. A life is not important except for the impact it has on others. And I think about these words that Jackie Robinson used to describe his life and the value of it. And I think about them in context of these words that I just read out of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. See, this text is the final two of those extensions that Jesus was teaching in the sermon. Those places where he took the Old Testament law and he restated it and then he followed it with, but I say... As if to say, let me add to it. Let me show you how to spread this law out. Let me show you how to go deeper with it. How for his followers, he wanted to to challenge us to rise to a higher level of human relationship and human behaviors. How he wanted us to do the unexpected because we have a high calling of God. See, my friends, we are called to not retaliate, and we are called to love our enemies. And what we know about these two statements is they are both counter to our human nature, but they're also counter to our culture. But they are perfectly aligned with God's love for the world. So it begins with this idea of turning the other cheek. Jesus says, it has been said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, where this comes from is, is in the law, in the Torah. It's actually repeated three times in there, this idea of eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But this was sort of the culture of the day as well. The Romans had a law called lex talionis, meaning the law of equals, which basically meant if someone broke your arm, you could break theirs unless you reached a settlement of some sort. The, uh, the Babylonians in the Code of Hammurabi, they had the rule that if it was in the same class, this idea of eye for an eye was acceptable. But if it was someone in the upper class had offended someone in the lower class and wounded them, they had to pay a hefty fine because that seemed to be fair. 
But what Jesus does when he says, but I say, he goes beyond this law of equals. He says, do not resist the oppressor. In other words, don't fight back. Go counter to the culture of the day, folks. So it starts with this idea, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, now, those of you that are left-handed, you have to give those of us that are right-handed a pass on this one. But here's what Jesus meant. Think about this. If you got struck on the right cheek, that means for someone right-handed to strike you, they had to backslap you. In the culture of the day, to be backslapped was the ultimate of insults. And so Jesus says, when someone insults you in the greatest way, when you get struck, a backslap on your right cheek, turn the other cheek. What he's really saying is, own the narrative. Don't give them the satisfaction of insulting you. Stand up for yourself. Where he gets to this other one, if someone sues you for your shirt, give them your coat also. Now, in their day and time, they didn't have closets full of clothes like we do. Matter of fact, most of them only had one outfit. So if someone sues you for your shirt, Jesus says, give them your coat. In other words, you're just going to stand in front of them essentially naked. And in doing that, you sort of embarrass them, not yourself, because you're the one that's giving the extra garment. You're challenging them and their desire to sue you. You make them uncomfortable with their action. With the evil they are perpetrating upon you to take your shirt. And then finally this idea, if someone asks you to go one mile, go two. Back in those days, the way the Romans oppressed the Jewish people, the Israelites, was they were allowed by law to walk to them and say, you carry my pack. And they had to do it to, or face severe beating. And so this was a way to diminish, to degrade, to steal someone's dignity. Think about Simon of Cyrene when Jesus was being crucified. You know, Jesus had been whipped and he was supposed to carry his cross, but his back was so bruised and beaten he could barely do it. So the Romans put it on Simon of Cyrene. And in the process of the indignity that they suffered on Jesus, they did it on Cyrene as well. But Jesus says, if someone asks you to go one mile, go two. Why? Because by going the second mile, they knew by law you had to do it. But if you choose to go the second mile, you are taking your dignity back. You're saying, no, it's all about me now. I'm in control of this, not you. They're seizing life on their own terms. So think about what happens in our world. Think about it when there's an obvious opportunity to retaliate. Think what would happen if we didn't. The great thing about the sport of baseball is that there's the rules in the rule book, and then there's a whole series of rules that are just sort of the customs of the day. For example, if we're playing a game and your pitcher hits one of my batters, when it's our turn in the field, we get to hit one of yours back. Sound familiar? Eye for an eye? Or if you hit one of our batters, the batter has the opportunity to charge the mound. Eye for an eye? And if we charge them out, the dugout's empty. Now, one of the great things about the dugout's emptying is if you ever watch a baseball fight, there's really not a fight because you're talking about millionaires who make their money with what their hands. They're not really about to punch each other, so there's a lot of shoving, a lot of yelling in this. It's all theater. It's like pro wrestling. 
So we know what's supposed to happen, right? If someone's batter gets beamed, there's supposed to be a charge in the mound. The dugouts are supposed to empty a whole bunch of hubble of who. And then on April the 21st, 2021, something else happened. Bryce Harper of the Philadelphia Phillies stood into the batter's box. He stepped in, you know, got himself all together, and he's facing Genesis Cabrera of the Cardinals. And Genesis Cabrera rears back and throws a 97-mile-an-hour fastball. Now, just think about that for a minute. It's about this big coming at you at 97 miles an hour. And he throws it up in the strike zone, up towards Harper's shoulder and in close to his body, but it gets away from him. And it hits Harper on the face. If there was ever an opportunity to charge the mound and empty the dugouts, this was it, right? And Harper takes his base, doesn't charge the mound. Everybody's kind of looking around going, what just happened? The next batter up is DJ, uh, D, D.D. Gregorius. He stands up. Cabrera rears back, throws a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, and it gets away from him, too, and he hits D.D. Gregorius right in the ribs. The umpire comes out immediately, looks at both dogouts and says, ah, no. So it puts a stop to the idea of charging the mound. And everybody knows what's going to happen. As soon as it changed side, as soon as the Cardinals are batting, the Phillies are in the field, they know what's going to happen. They know that the Phillies pitcher is going to drill one of the Cardinals batters. And it doesn't happen. All game long, they were sure. And then everybody thought, no, the umpires called it off. They put the word out there that if this happens, there's going to be an ejection. So nobody's doing this right now. So the next day is the day. Surely, when they meet tomorrow, surely a Phillies pitcher is going to drill one of the Cardinals' batters. It was a tense game. And yet, it never happened. This idea of an eye for an eye in the sport of baseball it was supposed to have happened, and yet it didn't. And only later did everybody figure out what had happened was that Harper realized that Cabrera had lost control, that it wasn't an intentional pitch at his face. It was an accident. Didi Gregorius figured out the same thing, and Harper had communicated already to that point by note back over to the Cardinals' dugout, I know it was a mistake. I know you weren't throwing at me. So who Harper, who had a chance to set the tone for go get them, boys, stopped them. The world took note. And yet, what do we know about the world? We know that still to this day, this idea of lex talionis, this idea of an eye for an eye, is still some of how we operate. And we remember how the, the, how the, uh, the Indian leader, Mahatma Gandhi, how he channeled what Jesus taught here in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And yet, we're still struggling with this. So Jesus calls us to go beyond this idea of an eye for an eye. As his followers, he calls us to own the story of God's love, to change the world by showing the folly of our actions in this idea of an eye for an eye. How to maintain our dignity, how to seize control when people oppress us, when people strike us, when people embarrass us. Jesus challenges us to show the world what grace is. And peace can look like. But 
But if you're following along, turning the other cheek is pretty hard. But Jesus doesn't let up off the gas here either, does he? He moves straight from that extension to the very next one. He says, you know, he says, it gets to the heart of the matter. You've heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, in other words, pay attention. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, in those days, the Israelites understood their neighbor as their fellow countrymen. Other Israelites, those naturalized citizens that had become Israelites, those were their neighbors and everybody else was the enemy. All the other countries of the world, everybody else was the enemy. See, we hear this phrase, neighbors, love your neighbors, and we think immediately of our friends and our family, and we kind of think it's about them against the world. But see, Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Calls us to love those people who are against us. He calls us to love those that don't respect us. He calls us to love those that mistreat us, that work against us, that gossip about us. Those that claim to hate us or that fight us every step of the way. And Jesus says we are to love these people. And the reason why we find in verses 45 through 48. Because God in heaven makes the sun shine on the evil and the good and sends rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those that love you, what reward do you have? The tax collectors do it, the Gentiles do it. No, instead, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, when we love our enemies, when we love those people that are against us, those people that try to take our dignity away, those people that try to insult us, then we are reflecting and showing the world and teaching the world that God has a greater love for each of us. See, loving your neighbor, that's easy work, right? Loving your enemy, this is the hard work, but with God, we can do the hard things. Because think about what the kingdom is. The kingdom says that the sun shines on both the good and the bad. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's grace for both good and bad. That's forgiveness for the righteous and the unrighteous. See, God's love abounds to all of us, even when we don't realize it, even when we refuse to take it or even realize that we can receive it. God's love is available to us. And God calls us to do the same thing. Now see, the hard part about this is when we love our enemies, it doesn't mean that we condone what they do. It just means that we love them as children of God. So think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was arrested by the Nazis. He was thrown in prison. He didn't agree with one bit of the Nazi regime, but he loved, he did ministry with, he cared for the guards that watched over him. He didn't do that to give agency to what they were doing, but he did that because they were children of God with the hope that by reflecting the light of God's love to them that he might be able to change their hearts so that they could change their ways. But something else happens when we love our enemies. It protects our hearts. It protects our souls. It keeps us in a closer relationship with God. I mean, I think about this, that when we rise to love our enemy, it's better for us. I remember Marsha Bledsoe, when I came here, she was our church council chair. She had been a school board superintendent, one of the toughest jobs on the planet. And she said to me, she said, Glenn, one thing I learned in my job 
was don't stoop to their level. Don't get in the mud and wrestle with the pigs because they love it and you're just going to get dirty. Sage advice. See, when we don't stoop to their level, when we begin to love our enemies and love them in spite of themselves, then we're beginning to find a deeper relationship with God who loves us. And that deeper relationship that we find with God is what God wants us to share the world. So think about Jackie Robinson's words. A life is not important except for the impact it has on others. And dear friends, Jackie Robinson was right. See, as we come to this table today to receive this meal of the kingdom, we need to think about Jesus' impact on our lives, but also what Jesus is calling us to do when he says, but I say. And think of the impact that we can have on others if we simply turn the other cheek, if we go the extra mile, if we love our enemies. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast for Centenary United Methodist Church. We hope that you will consider joining us for worship on Sunday mornings at 9 or 11 a.m. Blessings. Blessings.